Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. You want to turn there? Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for the word um, that you've given us. I ask, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see the glory of Christ, and that you would transform us into his image. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So I don't know if you guys know it, but you guys are experiencing somewhat of a miracle because this is my first PowerPoint ever. Never had a PowerPoint. It's pretty good. They've been trying to get me to do PowerPoints forever, but I just, I'm legit now. Um, I can't take credit for it. It was Patrick and Art. They did it. Mine was crayon, but they couldn't get it up on the thing. So, so what is the purpose of the church? It seems like a simple question. But in our culture today, it's being challenged on all kinds of fronts, the purpose of the church. Um, in our culture, we have a cancel culture, we have critical race theory, we have wokeness, we have Marxism, we have socialism, we have communism, we have all of these things, and it's causing a challenge in the church. What is the purpose for the church? What is the purpose of the church? In our passage in verse 23, Barnabas tells us, he says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And so we all want to be faithful to the Lord. What does that look like? What should we do or how do we do that? How do we remain faithful to the Lord? Well, it looks like being steadfast in purpose in declaring the gospel, being steadfast in purpose in discipling, and being steadfast purpose in demonstrating. And so, if you're like me, you might think, well, I'm pretty much a no-name person. I don't really have much influence. I'm not that prominent. I'm not all that powerful. 
there's really not much that I can do to change this crazy world that we live in right now. What, what can I ever do? But I want to encourage you in this, that though your name may not mean much in this world, you have a father whose name is above all names. You may not be powerful in this world, but your father is omnipotent. You may not have much influence in this world, but your father's hand holds the king's heart like a stream of water, and he turns it wherever he wills. This is the God that we serve. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and he is the center of your being, then you are somebody. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we can boldly and we can confidently be steadfast in declaring we can boldly and confidently be steadfast in discipling, and we can boldly and confidently be steadfast in demonstrating. And so our passage is broken down into those three parts. In verses 19 through 21, we see declaring the gospel. In verses 23 through 26, we see discipling in the gospel. And in verses 27 through 30, we see demonstrating the gospel. So in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so just to give you a little background of the city of Antioch, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, and you had Alexandria, and then Antioch was number three. And they say, uh, they estimate the population of Antioch to be around 500,000 people. Um, Not too far from Antioch, about five miles, there was the city of Daphne, and in that city was the worship of Artemis and uh, Apollos and and, uh, different Greek gods. Um, there was much moral laxivity in that area. There was cultural prostitution. It was very well known for its immorality. And if you, if you could see on the map, it's kind of a, it's a bridge between the east and the west. And so because of that, because of its location, you had Greeks living there. You had Syrians living there. You had Phoenicians and Jews and Arabs and Persians and Egyptians and Indians and even Orientals. They were all conglomerated in the city of Antioch. And so it was a very cosmopolitan city, uh, and it was full of little g-gods. It was a great commercial hub. Like I said, it was a, a, a crossroads between east and west. Um, and so Bruce, I, I saw this in his commentary, and I like this. He said, many were trying to find in various mystery cults a divine Lord who can guarantee salvation and immortality to his devotees. Now, the pagans of Antioch were assured that they were vain, what they vainly sought in those quarters could be secured through the Son of God. And so <clears throat> here you have these people going to this great cosmopolitan, pagan, immoral city, and they are declaring the gospel. 
And what's amazing is, is the scale that this happened. So as we've, read, as we've gone through Acts, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch converted to Christ. And then we saw the Roman centurion and his household um, converted to Christ. But here we see whole swaths of the city. And three times in this passage, verse 21 and 24 and 26, you see the word great many or great number. This is a, this is a huge number. And so we can see that the gospel has been spreading to the, to the Gentiles. And here we have this humongous scale of, uh, that's never been seen before. And what's amazing about that is these are just ordinary believers who go there. They're not apostles that go there. If you look at what's amazing is Cyrene, that's North Africa. That's like over a thousand miles to Antioch. <laughs> that amazes me. Like, I don't know. Can you imagine how long that took for them to get there or why they went there? I, I don't know, but they went. And, and, and so you, what's amazing is these are just ordinary believers who go. They're not apostles. They're not great teachers. Uh, they're not, you know, they don't have a great stature in the church or anything like that. They're just ordinary, average Joes who go to Antioch. And Hughes says, these unnamed believers from Cyprus and Cyrene with no official direction, no human instruction, no precedent to follow, nothing but a burning love for Christ, took the message to Antioch without realizing the revolutionary greatness of their act. They were the first believers to bring the explosive light of the gospel into the midnight of paganism. And so you got ordinary, average Joes empowered by the Holy Spirit living within them, and they wrecked that city. They just wrecked it. They changed the culture. It's just average believers. That's a great encouragement. How do we remain faithful to the Lord? We do it by understanding that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We declare, we declare even though living in this upside down world can seem overwhelming, we declare even though this culture we live in calls evil good and good evil, we declare, even though we are living in the most in-your-face, not even trying to hide it, anti-God, anti-human culture, which seems so hopeless to change, we declare. That is how we remain faithful to the Lord. We declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what changes the world. In verses 22 through 26, we see discipling. So the report of this came to uh, the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so Barnabas, the church in Jerusalem sees what's going on, sees what God has been doing to this pagan city. And so they send Barnabas to go and check it out. And so he comes and he sees the grace of God and he was happy. He was glad. 
He sees the work that God has been doing, and it made him happy. And then what did he do? What did he do when he saw that? He exhorted them to what? To be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then he goes and he, go, and he finds Saul, who is Paul, and he brings him, and they stay for a whole year in Antioch, and they disciple the new believers. And so the main point of this passage is the exhortation to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You think about these Antioch believers. They're new. They're untaught. No doubt they were delivered out of the darkness of the world by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, delivering them out of that. But you know, they probably still carried the mire and the sin of Antioch, just like all believers do, especially new believers. We still carry around this body of death. Yeah, they had probably ways to go in their language and their ethics and their relationships, but Barnabas saw the grace of God. He could see the fruit of the Spirit, but obviously there is much growth needed. What did he do? How did he exhort them? Did he give them like a bunch of rules? Did he give them a bunch of do's and a don'ts? Did he do that? No. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He encouraged them to meditate on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make Jesus Christ everything. That's what he exhorted them to do. And so in this way, what did Barnabas help them do? He helped them focus on that which would cleanse them of the defilement of Antioch, and that is beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Barnabas' exhortation is not just for new believers, it is for all believers. It is to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And so he goes and he gets Paul and he comes back with Paul and they stay a year and they teach, they disciple these new believers. What? What do they teach? They teach the same thing, the same truths that Paul would later write uh, in the book of Colossians. And I, I picked this Colossians uh, passage. It's a little long, but I think it, it's very important because it, it parallels with what Barnabas um, encouraged them to do. Um, and this is Colossians 1, uh, 25. I think, yeah, they, they did that. That's new. Um, so you could see it. Um, but if you have your Bible, turn there too, because I want you to circle some, th- some things uh, when you see it in here. And so what do they teach? They, they teach the same thing that Paul is later going to write to the church in, in Colossus. And so <clears throat> chapter 1 He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. 
In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's saying hold fast to Christ because there's going to be those who try to delude you with plausible arguments. And the thing about plausible arguments are they seem plausible. They seem right. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Jesus the Lord. So how did you receive Jesus the Lord? Faith. So just as you received Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So how are we to walk in him? In faith. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of that that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, what Barnabas said. Hold fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have an, an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. Here's the key. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The only thing that stops the indulgence of the flesh is holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ. How do we remain faithful to the Lord? By being steadfast in our purpose and discipling in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, when I first, I was a, a new, I got saved when I was 29. So before 29, I knew like nothing about anything about nothing. At 29, I knew everything. <laughs> so when I was, um, when I was at first as, as a Christian, I remember I went to my first together for the gospel. I think that was 2004, maybe. Um, 
I didn't know any of the people, like the R.C. Sproul or John Pye. I didn't know. I knew John MacArthur because I heard him on the radio. But I remember sitting in the back, and this has always stuck with me. Uh, one, of the, one of the speakers was Mark Dever, who was, who was a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he was relating this story of uh, he had a lady that was from Australia, uh, and she had been coming to his church for like seven years, and then she had to move back to Australia. And so she emailed him and, and told him how appreciative she was that every Sunday, everything that she heard was the gospel. And this is no joke. This is how ignorant I was. In the back of, the, of there, I'm like, that was boring. What? How boring is that? <laughs> to hear the gospel every Sunday? That's boring. That's what I thought. And this was, right about this time, I was, when I, when, I, when I said that in my mind, I was like, what, something's not right here. Everybody's talking about the gospel and, and, and how it's, you know, this and that. And my idea of the gospel was, okay, you go, you know, you say the prayer and you accept Jesus. You get the first base and then you do the home run on your own by doing the rules and all this. That's what I thought. That's, that's why I thought the gospel was boring because I'm already on first base. I don't need that anymore. That's the way I thought. And so it was right at this time, that's when I met our, uh, our sons were in preschool together. And so we're over there, and, and I don't know how we started talking, but somehow we started talking of, of, on, on God's sovereignty, and, and God was opening my eyes to his sovereignty at that time, and, and Art was getting all excited, and I was getting all geeked up, and we were like, uh, you know, and then, we, and then so he invited me to uh, the Tuesday men's meeting, which is at Ruby T's, which is, it's not, it's the building's still there, but it's, so we, we met over there. And so it was there that I began to be discipled in the gospel by Art and by Chris and by Patrick. And this was back when Patrick had hair. So this was like, <laughs> this was back in the day. Um, so it was exciting to me because I began to really learn what the gospel was. And so again, as I said, as a young Christian at that time, I thought the gospel was just first base. And then you followed the rules and that's how, that's how this all worked. And you measure, your measure of maturity and growth was how well you kept the do's and the don'ts. That's what I thought it was. And, I, and so as I'm going through being discipled by these men and, and really exploring the gospel and just being excited, like, wow, I had no idea. That's, wow, wow. It was like every, every time I met, I was just like blown away um, about the same, you know, in the, in the church circles that I was in, the, the at that time, there was a big, I don't know if you remember, but Hardee's used to have this, uh, they had those uh, cheeseburger commercials. So they had the girl, you know, the scantily clad girl riding the mechanical bull with the cheerleader. Did y'all see that? So, so it was better than what I did. But that came out at that time. And so the big thing was, hey, you know, you don't need to be going to Hardee's and eating those cheeseburgers. So I was like, so I'm learning the gospel, and then I'm hearing, it's just like confusing to me. So I was at Hardy's one day, and it was the morning. So, but this is, this is the struggle I had. I was at, I was at the Hardy's, and, and a lot of those people that I knew were there eating breakfast. And I was like thinking, well, I thought, well, maybe the biscuits are okay, but just don't eat the cheeseburger. <laughs> And so that, what my point is, is that that's what we get into. We get into this, we got these rules. Okay, we got to do this. Well, then we got, well, no. And it's like, it's a hamster wheel is what it is. It's exhausting. It's incorrect. It's false is what it is. 
And so it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done for me. And the more that I study and I realize what Jesus has done for me, my desires for Christ increase. And that's why in Colossians, he said all these things, there are no value of, of stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I can give you rules, but they don't stop the indulgence of your flesh. Uh, I always remember a Sam Storm's analogy of this. It made it very clear to me. Like you, uh, you, you're thirsty. There's no changing the fact that you're going to be thirsty. Being thirsty is not a sin. But you've just been drinking this dirty, nasty water. And you're like, man, this water's good because you're thirsty. And if I said, hey, don't drink that, you might be able to resist for a while. But after like the third day, you're going to be drinking that thing. There's no way for me to stop that. How do I get you to stop drinking that dirty water that I know is bad for you? I give you maybe this big glass of sweet, ice-cold sweet tea or whatever, right? And I put that there, and you drink that. You're like, man, it's awesome. Now I don't have to say don't drink this because you've drank this, and you realize this is way better. And so that's, that's the point. It's realizing what Jesus has done for me. That is what increases my desire for Christ. That is what changes the indulgence of the flesh, and so the passage in Acts, this is, this is an encouragement, but it's also a warning. It's a warning because it's easy to get off track. It's easy to get off the track of being faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's easy to slip from holding fast to the head, as Paul says in Colossians. And Art pointed that out last week in Galatians. Paul writes, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So <laughs> Here's Barnabas that's saying, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And the, and, and, and the Bible tells us that he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And yet, he still slipped. This is the warning. It is easy to do. This is why we must be on guard. So what did the new believers need to put to death sin? What did the new believers in Antioch need to transform them into the image of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, it says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what in that passage, what transforms us into the image of Christ? It is beholding the glory of the Lord. By seeing the glory of the Lord... We are transformed into the image of the Lord. That's what does it. And where do we see the glory of the Lord? In, in the next chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it tells us, by seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so beholding the glory of the Lord transforms us into the image of God. And where do we see the glory of the Lord? We see it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's by beholding the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are transformed into the image of Christ. And so what was the result 
of Barnabas and Paul's teaching and discipling these new believers and teaching them to hold fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 26, it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They were first called Christians. That's a pretty amazing statement there. That's the first time in the Bible Christian is used. So many people came to Christ in Antioch that the unbelieving population had to come up with a word or a term to describe them. They saw the love and the faith of these believers and holding fast to Christ and Christ upon their lips constantly that they took a Greek name for Messiah and they added it to a Latin, a Latin, a Latin suffix and that's where we get the English word Christian. So they saw the power of God and these people's lives being transformed. They didn't have a word for it, so they made one up, Christian, because Christ was always spoken. He was always talked about. He was always discipled about, was Christ. And so that's how they came up with the word Christian. You think about how amazing that is. Antioch was full of immorality and pagan worship, and this is where the, the first time Christian, the word Christian came into being. You think about this, now a no-name people, they now have a name, Christian. What was the result of the transformation? In verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of of Barnabas and Saul. You think about that. Here's a bunch of Gentile new believers, and they're giving money to support Jews who live in Judea. Think about that. The Jews thought down upon the Gentiles. They thought Gentiles were much lower, that they were dirty, that they were evil. Now you have these, so you can imagine the animosity that a Gentile might have towards a Jew. It was vice versa, right? <laughs> but the gospel so transformed these Gentile believers that they were like giving up their money to send back to their Jewish brothers, those with faith in Christ. That is a massive turnaround. It's proof of gospel transformation. And so a great many of the people of Antioch became believers by the declaration of the gospel. They became transformed and strengthened by the discipling in the gospel. And the result was that the people of Antioch demonstrated the fruit of the gospel. And this is very important. If you don't get anything out of the sermon today, get this. The order is very important. And God lays it out very Orderly, declare, disciple, demonstrate. The indicative comes before the imperative. What is the indicative? It's what Christ has done. That comes first. Then comes the imperative, which is the command, what am I supposed to do? But it's very easy to switch them. A joke that... Art and I have is 
um, we were, I don't know, we talked about college. Like, where did you go to college? I told him, well, what'd you study? I was like, uh, football, one, two, three. <laughs> that was my major. So now we turn it into gospel, one, two, three. That's what we always say, gospel, one, two, three. Here it is, gospel, one, two, three. The indicative comes before the imperative. You're standing in Christ. What he has done for you comes first. Then the command comes. It's not switched. When we hear the gospel declared, we then are discipled to hold fast to the head, and the result of that is an outpouring or a demonstration of the transformation that the Holy Spirit has worked in us. And we must be very careful as a church not to get that in the wrong order. Biblical mercy, biblical justice, biblical compassion is an outflow of the gospel. It is not a replacement of the gospel. It's an outflow of the gospel. I see this all the time in myself. So I, I look, I see all this going around in this world, and it's and sometimes I can just be like, how how can you believe? What are they? What are you doing? I see all the evil, right? And I do, and Laura's like, you're walking around here like a bull, and I'm like going to kick cans and stuff. I'm just like, and 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 she'll say, yeah, you know, stop it. Does does that does that make me stop it? Fight makes me more angry, right? So what, this is what I realize. When I feel that way, I can always look back, you know, you know what? I, I wasn't in the word. I wasn't, I wasn't spinning, I wasn't holding fast to the head. I want to, you know, I'm, I've been trying desperately to find where you declare the gospel, and there, there's got to be some kind of Greek uh, translation that says you can punch to the face or elbow to the face, but I don't see it in there. I've never found it. How am I going to love my enemies? It's only by holding the head. And every time I get in that situation, my wife is right some of the times. <laughs> no, she's right. It, she could tell. He, you know, I can, and I was like, yeah, she's right. I can tell too. If I'm not in the word, that's what happens. And it's funny because we're, we're doing the study, uh, reading the Bible together chronologically, and we're on like Job. And I'm reading, we're like reading Job like five through seven. It's like awful. But you know what? I feel awesome after I read it. I don't, it's, it's amazing. God's word is amazing. It doesn't matter where you read it. It's like, I notice, even though I'm reading Job and, and all this terrible stuff has happened to him and he's crying out and he's like, why is this happening? All this stuff. It's transforming for the rest of the day. But when that doesn't happen, I can get like that. And so we need to hold fast to the head because holding fast to the head is what produces the demonstration. If you look back through the years in, in our country, we can see all kinds of replacements that have tried to seep into the church. Back in the day, it was legalism, right? Right? And then we kind of got into the health and wealth thing, right? And now we got this cancel culture and this wokeness and this critical race theory today. It's all examples of different replacements for the gospel. But they all have something in common. They put the imperative 
before the indicative. They get the gospel and law mixed up. They are all works-based salvation. And they all lead down the road of destruction. What is the purpose of the church? To remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What does it look like? It looks like being steadfast in declaring the gospel, steadfast in discipling in the gospel, and steadfast in demonstrating the gospel. 